Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is August 25th, 2016. Today I'm joined by eminent scholar on Russia-Japan relations, Dr. James Brown. James Brown is associate professor at Temple University's Japan campus here in downtown Tokyo. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for having me on. It's great that you're here. There's so much going on between Japan and Russia. There are a lot of meetings going on. There's a lot of momentum being built for a potential meeting between the prime minister and Vladimir Putin, perhaps before the end of the year, maybe, in fact, twice. But before we get into that, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you fall into Russia's specialization from Scotland? Yeah, so I'm from Edinburgh in, in Scotland, and uh, my PhD was from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, particularly mm -hmm. focused on Russian foreign policy. After completing that, I came to Japan, so I've been here for about five years and particularly focusing on still Russia, but also its relations with Japan. And I've really been quite fortunate in that at uh, just the time when I was finishing my PhD, so many developments were taking place around the world, which really focused on Russia. Now, we've had the developments in Ukraine, also Russia's involvement in Syria, and increasingly also Russia's becoming more and more involved in the Asia-Pacific. Mm -hmm. We all know about America's pivot to Asia. Russia's trying to do the same thing. And they're doing it sometimes in conjunction with what the Chinese are doing. That's right. So Russia has developed a very close relationship with China. They have a strategic partnership. And the Japanese are going, darn! It's a major concern for Japan. In sure. that if in Japan they're concerned whether there might be a move towards more isolationism in the United States if at some point the security treaty might come under some doubt between mm -hmm. Japan and the United States. Which is not unlikely, I mean, with it's the Trump possible. presidency. And when you're thinking about security issues, you have to consider every possibility. And if that were to happen, then there would be the danger of Japan being left alone in the region with potentially a hostile China and a hostile Russia. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, it makes sense for Japan to try and draw Russia a little bit away from China and establish stronger relations between right. Japan and Russia. I hope you don't mind me asking, but I'm just really um, intrigued why and how somebody would fall into Russian studies, for example, in, in Scotland. Do they have a center of excellence on Russian studies there? And was there something going on as you were finishing your undergraduate and you decided that you wanted to do Russian studies? Because, I mean, of all the studies, the geopolitical studies you can get into, I, I've got to imagine that whatever bilateral relations it, it includes, Russian studies has got to be one of the most thorny and, and difficult to kind of get your arms around. Well, for that reason, it's all the more interesting. I mean, Scotland does have a center of excellence uh, for Russian studies that's based at the University of Glasgow. And I spent mm -hmm. a year there start studying the, the Russian language. But in terms of why I became interested, it was really a, a sort of family thing that uh -huh. uh, my father, who's now retired, was working as uh, a British civil servant. And in particular, he was involved in a program which was tried to try and help Russia, the Russian Federation, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So he became interested in Russia, and I think that that interest you know, rubbed off on me. Mm -hmm. As you were going through your PhD program, there was a lot going on with nuclear submarines as well. So that must have been a, uh, one of the triggers. But I mean, the, the nuclear submarine program uh, by the Russians is is massive, and I, I don't know, I can't compare it between that and probably the United States, but it's got to be, you know, on par with, you know, the best in the world. Well, Russia has become clearly a, a diminished power in comparison with the Soviet Union, but it retains 
significant strength in several areas. Mm -hmm. Clearly, one of those is in energy, it's an exporter of oil and gas, and another one is its military. It retains a very powerful military, and in particular, it has a very strong uh, nuclear program. And although in many ways the United States and Russia are not of the same strength internationally, in one area they are, and that's in nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. You just published a book actually on Japan-Russian relations, didn't you? That's correct. It came out in March of this year, and the particular focus... Congratulations. Thank you very much. Mm. Uh, the particular focus is on the territorial disputes. That's huge. You know, maybe, I, I guess viewers know this, but it's just astounding that 71 years have gone by and they still haven't signed a peace treaty because the Russians, and this, we had this, this commemoration all last week. There was Hiroshima, there was Nagasaki, there was the surrender. And then the Russians came in from the, the Kurils and, and captured the islands, the, the four islands yes. in dispute. They yes. captured many more. But they came in after Japan had surrendered and they were, they had their eyes on Hokkaido, didn't they? That's right. So um, there was the suggestion from the Soviet side that they wanted a zone of occupation in Hokkaido, that uh, they wanted to essentially divide Hokkaido and they would control the northeast part of it. Mm -hmm. And the, the US side said no. Oh, they wanted something like the Potsdam Declaration where um, Germany would be divided up in what a disaster that was. Exactly, that in many ways, although Japan did lose those four islands that had been under their administration uh, prior to the, the war, and which Japan considers their inherent territory, although they lost those, in some ways they were quite lucky not to lose more. Sure. They could have ended up in a situation comparable to Germany. Right. Well, isn't it a fact that General MacArthur actually threatened to use a, a third atomic bomb, which he didn't have, against the Soviets if they did intend to invade Hokkaido? Yeah, and clearly there is the, the argument that one of the main reasons for the United States using the atomic weapons was not to defeat Japan. It was rather as a very clear message to the Soviet Union. Really? Run that by me again? That the reason for using the atomic weapons was not actually to defeat Japan, which was already well on its way to defeat. It was rather as a clear message to the Soviet Union to show we've got these Stay weapons. Out. And if you continue to try and increase your sphere of influence, then, you know, that's going to be trouble for you. I don't know if that actually worked, though, because we dropped two bombs and then they invaded. The, uh, the first bomb was on the 6th of August. Right. After that, the Soviet Union declared war on Japan on the evening of the 8th of August. Uh, they began their attack in the early hours of the 9th of August. Later that day, Nagasaki uh, was attacked. Mm -hmm. So the two happened uh, very much at the same time. Okay. And how close were they? I mean, had they actually had uh, soldiers landing in Hokkaido, northern Hokkaido at that point? What happened, first of all, was that uh, the, the Soviet forces attacked in Manchuria, uh, then in, in Korea, and also in Sakhalin. It was only slightly, slightly later that they moved south through the Kuril chain, taking the disputed islands at the very end of August, at the beginning of September 1945. Maybe over a two-week period of time? It took them quite a long time. And in actual fact, the last of the disputed territories, the Habomai right. islets, were the occupation of those was only completed after the signing of the instrument of surrender on the 2nd of September. So that kind of certified that the Soviet presence there was okay for the time being? Well, it was a fait accompli that right. Japan had uh, surrendered. 
the United States had other things to focus on, that there, it simply wasn't a priority at the time to oppose Soviet occupation of that territory. Okay, the, so the dispute right now for the last 71 years has been four islands in the Northern Territories, the Southern Kurils, they're called the Northern Territories here in Japan. It's been a huge bone of contention. Where do we stand right now? So at the moment, uh, Prime Minister Abe has made it a real priority of his to try and solve this dispute. He said that for a long time, hasn't he? He has. He wants he, it to be a, a signature of his administration. He does. He sees it as a real legacy issue. Uh, I've heard it said about him that he's really passionate about two foreign policy issues, one of which is North Korea and the uh, the abductions issue, mm-hmm. and the other one is the, the islands issue with Russia. And it seems that he really believes that he has an opportunity to make a deal to actually try and get some of this territory back. He's had this in his hand before, though, hasn't he? Two islands have been offered in the past. The United States stepped in and said, don't you dare cut a deal. Leave that alone. You want all four of them or nothing. Let's stop this negotiation. Wait till you shore up your defenses. Maybe go at it again. That's correct. So in 1956, the Soviet Union offered to transfer the two smaller islands Uh, to Japan after the signing of a peace treaty. Mm -hmm. Uh, Due to opposition from the United States, as well as some other things, that didn't happen. Uh, In 1960, that offer was cancelled, but under Putin, it's been revived. Mm -hmm. Putin has made it clear that if Japan were to accept just the two smaller islands after the signing of a peace treaty, Russia would be willing to do that. So if Japan wants to settle for just the two smaller islands, that offer is there. Uh The issue is that uh, for the Japanese population, uh, that doesn't seem enough. Those two small, small islands only account for 7% of 7% the total. 7% of the, of the total of the four. That's right. It, it doesn't seem like a... It doesn't you know, seem like an equal We've waited division. long enough. It doesn't seem like an equal division. Exactly. And the economic development has just gone gangbusters up there. That's right. So during the 1990s, these uh, islands were completely neglected. Life on them became absolutely bleak. There was a big movement of population from the islands to elsewhere in Russia. But over more recent years, now that Russia, Russia's economy during the 2000s grew significantly thanks to the increase in the oil price, it's meant that the Russian authorities have been able to invest more mm-hmm. in these islands. So there's been uh, new airports, new roads, new housing, and also some new military facilities right. as well. Right. So what was the momentum in the late 50s, early 60s, that kind of compelled the Russians to say, look, we'll give you those two islands, everything will be fine between us. So the key thing in the mid-1950s was that the Soviet Union were eager to draw Japan away from the United States. And so by offering these two islands, their hope was that perhaps the security treaty between Mm -hmm. Japan and the United States wouldn't be renewed. When that was renewed in 1960, the Soviet Union under Khrushchev decided, okay, now that that's happened, we're no longer going to fulfill that promise to transfer two islands. Right. So for most of the Cold War period, that offer was not on the table. Mm-hmm. It came back under Putin. Okay, what a tumultuous period that was because in the early 60s, we had the revision of the, the security treaty mm. and, and the tremendous riots in Tokyo and uh, the, the anti-government movement that pretty much died out as... After that, that whole issue died down too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then we had the seals come up just recently in defiance of, you know, Japanese uh, government for the, once again, something that had to do with the security. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and of course, with the, the Seals movement, it reminded many people of the, the 1960s. Now, however, that movement has disbanded, yeah. and some people wonder whether the opposition to uh, some of the LDP's plans has somewhat died away. I don't think so. I think yeah. that if Abe, now that he has that new election victory in July under his belt, is biding his time, but he will push forward again on looking to see if some progress on revising the constitution can be made. So what kind of chance do you give them actually coming to some sort of a conclusion and signing a peace deal? So Abe is going to push very, very hard for the remainder of this year. He is um, meeting with Putin, first of all, in Vladivostok on the 2nd of September. He's attending an Eastern Economic Forum there, and it's a big step. That's mm -hmm. the first trip by a Japanese prime minister to Vladivostok. It's going to be followed up by further meetings at the G20 later in September on the sidelines of the United Nations. And all of this is building up sure is. to a Putin visit to Japan. Not a formal a, visit, though. Well, that was what we initially thought. However, in more recent times, it's been suggested that it actually would be an official visit. Mm -hmm. Now, this actually matters quite a lot because if it is an official visit, what that means is that there's greater expectation for some sort of tangible outcome mm -hmm. from that meeting. They will also have a joint statement. And from that, they will definitely look to try and make some real progress on the territorial dispute. Right. So it's probably a good idea that the president of the Russian Federation is not going to be visiting Tokyo because can you imagine, I mean, the sound trucks even now, I mean, on the anniversary of the invasion or whenever there's a, a, an incident that involves uh, the Soviet Union, I mean, the sound trucks just go crazy. If, if you know, Putin visits Tokyo, that would really be a... Well, he's visited in the past. And so it is something which Abe is obviously considering mm -hmm. that um, Putin will be spending its expected some time in Tokyo, although the main focus is on an expected visit that he would make to Yamaguchi. Yes. Now, Yamaguchi Makes sense to me. Abe's home prefecture. And the idea mm -hmm. is that they would hold talks in an informal setting. Mm -hmm. And on that occasion, Abe will be hoping to convince Putin, with whom he's been cultivating a close personal relationship, you'd be hoping to convince him of the merits of a deal. Now, what Abe hopes to offer the Russian side to induce them to make these concessions is economic cooperation. He's got an eight-point plan. He does indeed. This was announced in May uh, when Abe went to, to Sochi, uh, a visit which caused some indignation from other G7 members because their thinking was, why is the Japanese prime minister, a G7 member, a country that has sanctions against Russia, why is he courting Russia at this time? And didn't we agree that we're going to isolate uh, Putin? We're not going to visit him. We're not going to make visits to, to Moscow. And the prime minister has already done that. Exactly. And so he is really being pulled in two directions. The other G7 members are saying we need to isolate Russia. This mm -hmm. is particularly coming from the United States sure. and also the UK. But Abe feels so strongly about this issue. And he also thinks that at the moment, it's a window of opportunity. The Russian economy is really quite weak. Russia is isolated. So he thinks that perhaps at this particular point, whilst Putin is still in power, maybe a deal is on offer. Maybe. However, yeah. I think that that is overly optimistic. He, he falls into this habit every once in a while of overpromising and underperforming. He still has to deal with the issue in the Crimea hmm. that... Putin is absolutely going to ask for concessions from Japan. Let's 
let's do something about that so we can break this this stalemate between the the G7. Um, I, I think there's a lot on the table. Yeah, and clearly the Russian side will be saying, look, if you want to do business, mm-hmm. if you want concessions from us, well, the first thing you need to think about is dropping your sanctions. Right. Because it's extraordinary that you can have this rapprochement between the two sides at the same time that Japan still has sanctions against Russia. Right. Actually, the, the visit in Sochi did not go so well for the Japanese. At the time, it seemed to go really quite well. However, just a few days after that visit, there were a few statements. Hell no including from uh, President Putin. And from Putin, what he said in response to a question from a journalist, the journalist suggested that perhaps Russia was moving towards the idea of looking to sell the islands to Uh. Japan. And his response was, there are many things that we would be interested in buying, but we're not going to be selling anything. And that was a clear message to the Japanese side that whilst they're happy to do more business with Japan, whilst they would be delighted to welcome more investment from Japan, especially mm-hmm. in the Far East, they're not going to be making major territorial concessions. I, it seems to me that to be an awfully hard deal to broker, but wouldn't it be just a fabulous, wonderful, beautiful thing if the prime minister was able to pull a rabbit out of a hat, Japan and Russia signed a peace deal, and the next visit of Putin to Tokyo, it would be it would be fabulous. It would be triumphant. He would be, you know, welcomed as a hero, and the prime minister would go down in history as he uh, he really wants to. It would be an enormous win for the prime minister, and this is no doubt what he hopes. Mm-hmm. I don't think he really believes that he can get all four islands, but perhaps he thinks that he can have something which is more than two. And if he did achieve that, he would go down in history, sure. and rightly so. Well, even if he even if he accepts the two, uh, we signed a peace deal. I, I don't agree on that. No. If you were to accept just two, as I said, it's only 7%. That offer has been on uh, available for some time. And if you were to suddenly accept that, I think many Japanese people would think, well, you've given up mm-hmm. on 93% of our inherent territory, on the two largest islands. And you've accepted just these very small islets and the island of Shikotan. Mm-hmm. And um, if that were to happen, I think the, the prime minister's approval rating would really collapse. So he knows he can't go for that. So he has to try and persuade the Russian side of conceding more than two islands. And so, I don't think he can do that. Okay, so let's, let's extrapolate just a little bit. What possibly could that be? I mean, probably joint venture with fisheries for economic development on the remaining two islands, the larger two islands. Um, that, what, that's on offer. Mm-hmm. The Russian side have said that we would be happy to have joint development of the islands as long as it doesn't assume any kind of challenge to Russian sovereignty. Mm-hmm. But again, I don't think that's enough. Japan needs to push for something more. And from the Russian side, we've recently had an opinion poll which suggests that 78% of Russians... The lowest in recorded history of that's right. yeah. resistance to that sort of an idea. Yeah, and they are against uh, the transfer of territory. Putin is actually unusual in being in favor of any concessions on this territorial deal. If you ask the average Russian, they would say, why should we give back territory? It's ours. Especially because they regard this as territory gained through the victory of the Soviet Union in the Second World Mm -hmm. War. They don't think that this territory was seized illegally from Japan. They think that it was a legitimate result of the Second World War. So this is going to be a pretty penny for the Japanese. I don't think it's going to happen at all. Mm -hmm. Putin has surprised observers on many, many occasions. However, I think that it's not going to happen on this occasion. I think that he instead is going to show the willingness of Russia to have closer relations with Japan, to do more business economically, 
but I don't think he's going to make any deal. Instead, he'll try and string it out forever. He'll continue to give the Japanese side just enough hope so they think that maybe a deal might be possible in the future, but he's not going to offer anything beyond two islands when he comes to Japan. Okay, well, there are smart people in the prime minister's office that are having the same kind of discussion that we're having, and they don't want that result to be reached after putting all this effort into it. So what kind of things can the prime minister come up with that could convince you know, Putin, yes, it's okay, maybe a 70-year lease, and then we'll think about it again, or, or something that might be termed acceptable to the Japanese population. They'll be thinking about all of these different options, but they've been tried in the past. People have come up with all sorts of different models mm -hmm. to try and solve this. But the basic fact remains is that the absolute maximum that the Russian side would offer is the transfer of the two islands after the signing of a peace treaty and some joint development of the other two islands. And since the Japanese side is not willing to accept that, that means that actually there's still an enormous gap between the two sides. Mm -hmm. So I think that no matter what Abe tries when Putin comes to Yamaguchi, whatever he tries to offer him, it's not going to be enough. So it's a dead issue? Well, it's not a dead issue because they will continue to talk about this, but the prospects of it actually being resolved uh, are very low. Maybe it's something of a distraction, but another interesting development is that a Japanese businessman was just arrested on the Northern Island Territory Monday. And this has really caused a big controversy in the prime minister's office. That's right. So what's happened is that uh, each summer there are these visa-free visits to take Japanese citizens. It's been going on for a couple of years. Uh, it's been going on since the early 1990s, actually. And this individual is actually an interpreter who's mm -hmm. on the trip. And... It was to uh, Kunashir, which is known as Kunashiri in Japanese, and he was stopped by the Russian authorities as he was trying to leave the island. They inspected his hand luggage and found 4 million yen. And he was held by the Russian authorities until the 24th, just yesterday. He's now been released without any charge. But this has caused a great deal of uh, kind of dissatisfaction within Japan because Japan doesn't recognize Russian sovereignty over these islands. Right. So yeah. their position is that the Russian side shouldn't be arresting Japanese citizens on these islands. So he went over on a visa-free visit. There's apparently a ferry that goes from northern Hokkaido to this island on a regular basis, maybe weekly, monthly? During the summer, there are a number of these visits. Okay. Yeah. And they carry just people? Do they carry material or, or cars? Mainly or? people. And the okay. idea is the, the former residents of these islands that were expelled after they had been taken by Russia, that they could then go and visit uh, their homeland. Also, their relatives could go and visit graves. That's the reason why this program exists. Well, my gosh, I mean, after 70 years of complete exclusive Soviet occupation, I mean, the people who were born there or who might have lived there, I mean, they're, they're well into their 80s or 90s. That's right. So a majority of them have uh, you know, passed away. Mm -hmm. uh, there are still a number of uh, former residents who are still active and campaigning for the return of the islands. However, as you suggest, uh, these are now very elderly individuals. Mm -hmm. And so it's mostly about their relatives right. being able to visit the islands, but also scientists, journalists, researchers. Well, if I was administering the islands and a visitor came with an empty suitcase and spent a couple of days and then was leaving with magically appearing 4 million yen that is not generated or maybe collected on that island, I would be curious. It would be worth a, a couple of sessions to me. Well, it's, uh, we don't know the full details of what has happened. 
The interpreter says that he was given a package, he didn't know what it contained, and that he had been told to, to take it and deliver it to someone in Japan. So clearly uh. there's something a bit fishy going on here, and uh, we don't know the full details. But what's important here from the political perspective is that there was a worry that this incident could create problems, tensions, just before Abe is expected to go to Vladivostok on the 2nd of September to meet with Putin. Right. So what they've done is they've resolved this issue as quickly as they can. He has been released. He's soon to return to Japan. And both sides, I think, hope that this issue will just go away and they'll be able to concentrate on their summit meeting on the 2nd of September. But what's the big deal, Dr. Brown? It's one individual. He's a maybe a trader, not a trader, but a trader. He's facilitating trade between the, the two islands. The issue is that since... Japan claims those islands, their position is that the Russian authorities shouldn't be involved in administering them. The Russian mm. authorities shouldn't be uh, taking uh, kind of legal actions against Japanese citizens on that territory because the Japanese government's position is that this is Japanese territory. Mm -hmm. So their official position is that this is almost equivalent to the Russian authorities exercising uh, sovereignty over a bit of Hokkaido or something. Well, welcome to the party. I mean, this has been in existence for 71 years. Exactly. So some of this anger is artificial. Mm -hmm. They feel that they have to express dissatisfaction. They have to protest about this, but they recognize that this is just the way things are. A Japanese national was detained in the Northern Territories. He was released today. A lot of controversy on to why he was there, what he was doing, and how this 4 million yen appeared. Please stay tuned. We'll see how this develops. Welcome back. If you live in Tokyo, you know that Tokyo is a buzz at the diplomatic level. Diplomats from China, South Korea, and of course the Japanese are meeting for a trilateral meeting. This is a big deal, Dr. Brown. Absolutely. The, this meeting between the foreign ministers of the three countries, it's the first time that the Chinese foreign minister has come to Japan since 2012, since relations between the two countries became particularly fraught. And they have an awful lot to talk about, mm -hmm. in particular the situation with North Korea, but also trying to ensure that tensions over the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea don't really become too inflamed. Right. It seems like it's been building up to a crescendo and things are really quiet over these last two weeks in anticipation of this trilateral meeting. Yeah, although some people thought that there was a danger that this might actually be cancelled. And the reason for that is because of the increase in Chinese activities it was that hot. around the Senkaku Islands. Mm -hmm. But in actual fact, it's gone ahead, and that's a very, very positive sign. Even better is the fact that they agreed to move ahead with plans to have a summit between the three countries' leaders. That's expected to happen in Japan. All of the observers thought that maybe this would occur at best next year in 2017. In actual fact, they're now talking about the possibility to have it before the end of 2016. That's incredible because look at all the activity that's going on. We were talking about the visit with Putin, either formally or informally, with the, the trilateral meeting that's going on right now. They're meeting again today, I believe. Today's Thursday, concluding tomorrow. A lot is happening on the diplomatic front. Absolutely. It's going to be a busy few months up to the end of the year, uh, combining this uh, likely Putin visit mm -hmm. with the leaders of South Korea and China coming as well. It's really an important time for Abe. If he gets some significant foreign policy successes, this could really help him electorally. Yeah. Well, I think you can understand now why he kept his foreign minister when he finished his uh, cabinet shuffle. That's right. There was a lot of speculation about Mr. Kishida being mm -hmm. replaced. 
But by having this continuity, it helps him to continue to push forward with these various initiatives, with trying to push towards a deal with the mm -hmm. Russian side, and also in trying to improve relations with China and South Korea. I've got to imagine that the biggest issue that they're talking about right now is North Korea and the missile. They just launched another missile this, this week. It must cause an awful lot of concern. Absolutely. I think that was the main focus of this week's meeting, that North Korea didn't just launch a missile. It was a missile launched from a submarine and also one that traveled for 500 kilometers. Now, what this shows is that North Korea are improving all of the time their missile capabilities. And clearly, this is a major concern, particularly for South Korea and Japan. So what those two countries will have been doing is trying to persuade China that's really the only country that has significant leverage over North Korea to try and pressure them to tone back, uh, to scale down their activities, and to, to stop pushing forward with their nuclear program and their missile program. Right. There's been suggestions recently that China doesn't exert as much leverage over the hermit kingdom as people would like to believe. Well, they certainly don't uh, exert as much leverage as many countries would like, but in the trilateral meeting, they did suggest that they were against North Korea's missile program, against their nuclear program, and they also agreed to urge North Korea to reduce tensions. Mm -hmm. So that's actually a good sign. It shows that whilst China is not going to apply full pressure to North Korea, they are going to at least try and nudge it in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Well, what you're thinking about this, I mean, clearly the North Koreans are not doing this as a concession. They're doing this for a long-term view they want to establish themselves as a, as a nuclear power and somebody that can defend themselves and scare their neighbors. That's exactly right. That's why they've been pursuing this nuclear program for so many years now. The next stage is to be able to have a ballistic missile which can be launched from a submarine and can be a genuine kind mm -hmm. of danger, or in their view, a deterrent against their enemies. And they're moving forward with this. And the reason why they're doing it is because in their view, they feel surrounded, they feel threatened by the United States, by South Korea, and they're going to continue to move in this direction. Gosh, I wonder why. But the other reason why they're doing this is for the economic value of exporting arms. I mean, they're, they're, they've really gung-ho gung on that. Well, they'll pretty much do anything which will bring in foreign currency. And uh, they also try and use saber-rattling threats to induce economic incentives from, uh, from the West and from other countries. This is a tactic which they've used for, for years, and um, unfortunately, it looks like it's not going to change anytime soon. Where do they get the submarines? Are those home-built? I don't know. That's an amazing thing. I mean, they have to be state-of-the-art because the, the, the whole Sea of Japan is littered with listening devices, so mm. these things have to be pretty sophisticated. Where do they get the technology? How do I they mean, build these? That's not my area of expertise. I don't think, however, that these are the most up-to-date bits of equipment. Mm -hmm. um, they simply don't have the, the money for those. I wouldn't be at all surprised if they're actually really quite old Soviet subs. Okay. But again, I, I don't know uh, the specifics. But actually having launch capabilities, I mean, that is really state-of-the-art, isn't it? It is, and they've been improving really significantly. And so the real worry is that they will become better and better. Also, the capabilities to miniaturize nuclear technology, and then they would actually be able to have a genuine ballistic mm -hmm. missile kind of threat to the United States. Okay, so the, the three countries are meeting here. They're foreign ministers. I mean, the, the top guys are meeting here That's in correct. Tokyo. Yeah. Probably the outcome of that, the best outcome of that is a meeting of the heads of state, probably before the end of the year. That's correct. Some action on North Korea. What else can we 
anticipate might come out of this trilateral meeting? Well, the real hope will be to reduce tensions between Japan and China. Right. That over the last few months,、sure. there have been concerns about Chinese ships、uh, going into the、uh, contiguous waters、uh, beside the, the Senkaku Islands, and the hope will be that. Meeting in that trilateral format, as well as discussing other things, they'll be able to reduce tensions over the Senkaku issue. A lot to hope for. Please stay tuned. We're going to continue to watch this and report on it to you. Welcome back. If you watched the closing ceremonies of the Olympics in Rio, you can't have missed the appearance of Japan's Prime Minister dressed up as Super Mario. This was a big deal. It was probably one of the highlights. Of the Japanese presence in the Olympics, you watched it too. What was your I thoughts? I thought it was wonderful. I was really surprised, as was everyone else.、Uh, we've always considered Abe to be a rather dull, square, square. somewhat square, and I think、stay. that that's exactly what he is like. But、mm-hmm. clearly,、uh, there has been this suggestion to try and improve his image, and it's an excellent suggestion. How can you portray this individual as being a dangerous, would-be militarist, which of course is what China tries to do with Abe? How can you do that with Super Mario? Right. So I think it was a wonderful way of softening his image and a real success. It really was wonderful, and it kind of came out of left field. And I think that's one of the things that was so dramatic about it is that the graphics, I think, were very well done. And just the performance—it just really sent a really good signal. I don't know if it was teen up. This this idea that maybe characters will be used very very strongly in the Tokyo Olympics, but it does kind of suggest that tone. Well, they've still got a lot of time to decide on it,、uh, but clearly it's a very good start for the Tokyo Olympics after a lot of really bad news. Of course,、mm. the the scandal over the potential plagiarism with the logo, all of the difficulties with the stadium, and now if people can forget about that, instead focus on. What promises to be a very exciting Olympics? Then that can obviously be very good. Well, I'd, I'd take it a step further. I would say that this is the only successful thing that the Japanese have done with regard to the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. I mean, this one went off very well. It sang. It resonates. Even a week later, we're still talking about it. Yeah, it was、um, absolutely successful. I've been hearing from people in the UK, in Russia, saying, "Wow, I mean,、yes. this looks really exciting." And also, people pointing out that. Most leaders around the world wouldn't do this. I mean, can you imagine Obama dressing up as a cartoon character、right. or、um, yeah. Angela Merkel?、Um, right. it, it doesn't really fit your expectations with Abe, as I said. But he did it, and all credit to him. Right. Well, the credit is an all to him.、Uh, apparently,、um, former Prime Minister Modi came up with the idea. Well, that's the story. It seems a little bit difficult to believe. This has all of the markings of being a suggestion from a PR company,、uh, but they've. Suggested that Prime Minister Mori was the one behind it. So who knows? Why would they do that? I mean,、uh, who is trying to support his image as the kingpin of the Olympics? I mean, maybe that's part of it, but it just doesn't ring true to me. Well, he's one of the main figures who is tasked with the organization of the Olympics, and after、uh, all of the difficulties they've had. It's good if some positive reaction is directed towards the organisers of this. After all, it doesn't really help the Japanese government if the credit goes to a PR company.、It's、oh, absolutely. If they can take the credit. Oh, absolutely. Sure. Who? Who? I mean, you don't pay your your PR agency to do that. Yeah. And maybe since he's kind of at the pinnacle of how things are, are filtering out, and maybe he feels a little bit insecure about his stodgy appearance and、mm. his kind of really old boy image. That yes, he is cool too, and he can do.、Uh, Crossplay, and、mm-hmm. he's with it. 
It would have been fascinating to see the, the meeting to be a fly on the wall when this idea was pitched to Abe, where they suggested, Prime Minister, if you wouldn't mind dressing up as Super Mario, we would think that it would be a good idea. Perhaps he embraced it straight away, or uh, perhaps slightly more likely, he required a bit of persuasion. Okay, well, probably in the future, in the near-term future, the true story will come out. We're going to be following this and watching it, and if that story does come out, we capture that fly on the wall, we'll report it to you. Please stay tuned.